Uh, my name is Paul, one of the pastors here, if you're new with us. Um, I've in the last uh, four weeks, I've been on sabbatical. And so it's not like our typical understanding of sabbaticals every seven years or so that uh, churches usually give pastors sabbaticals. But this is just an annual thing that GCF does for its pastors to allow time to visit other churches, to read, and to be refreshed. And so it was indeed uh, just refreshing to me just after a busy season building this building, getting this all planted with Jeff here in the valley and also working on our North Campus building. And so this was indeed a refreshing time to me. And it actually took probably a couple weeks to even settle down uh, to actually enjoy sabbatical because of everything that was going on. So thank you for the time away. It was indeed a rich time for me and my family. Uh, one of the things we got to go do was visit one of the missionaries that we support, that we pray for regularly, Virgie, Virgil and uh, me and him go by Virgie, but <laughs> Virgil and Kelsey Brown up in Portland. Uh, and so they're doing a, a work up there, and they launched almost the same time as we did uh, about a year and a half ago, uh, but just under very different circumstances. He is kind of doing what they would call a scratch plant, so just moving to the area and gathering people that way. So he is pastoring by himself, and so we visited him. Uh, Emily and I visited him a year ago, and it's just hard work, but the Lord has been gracious to them uh, just as he's begun to press in and, and just pray over that and have other churches support them uh, just in a very hard place to do ministry, a very hardened place to the gospel. I mean, the Northwest in general is fairly hard towards the gospel, but especially up in Portland, it just is uh, very post-Christian in a lot of senses, and so it's hard ground so to speak, but it is good work that he's doing, and the Lord has really blessed it. Last year, they were um, just through the work of the Lord. They actually were trying to find space, and the Lord provided them with a building actually just as a gift. He went and preached as a guest preacher at another church, and they liked the work he was doing, and they just asked him a few questions. They said, we'd like to give you our building. So it's just one of those things you, you just kind of are baffled at, and this was actually in the neighborhood he had moved to to plant. And so just unreal how the Lord has preceded him there. And yet it's hard work. I look at a lot of the work, uh, the things we have here, um, just uh, resources both financially and with people. And he is just on the very other end of the spectrum. Uh, small, about 70 people. And he, a lot of these people are doing everything. Or so many of them are not even, uh, they're just starting to attend. So a lot of it is on him. So he has a lot of work to do. Uh, but it was just a huge joy to be able to worship with him and see what God is doing. As uh, when we visited, uh, he had just appointed uh, three other elders to kind of share in that work with him. And so it was pretty quick for him to be able to do that. But these were good, godly men that he had known for a number of years who decided to come help him with that work. And so there was just, you could just see a sense of relief on his face as he was able to invite those guys into that work. Uh, but they still have a lot to do, but they are. Um, just, I think the Lord has blessed it beyond uh, what he was hoping to this point. So really encouraging to be able to visit them, to be able to pray with them and encourage them, uh, and just to send the blessings of you all on, uh, just as we headed up, uh, that is just, a, he said it was a real encouragement just to see one of the churches that supports him, just to see just someone um, actually is paying attention to what's going on, because at times it feels like week in and week out of, <laughs> is this right, Lord? Are we heading the right direction? So... Um, really encouraging to be there. Uh, if you have your Bibles this morning, turn to Mark chapter 3. We'll be starting in verse 7 there. 
And as we've continued to study in the book of Mark, one of the things that uh, you recognize about the differences between the Gospels is that Mark is very much a book that reads fairly quickly. Uh, it's much more narrative in form, and so like events happen very quick, um, and just, just things move. There's a lot of immediately <laughs> phrases, and so you get a sense that Mark is very focused in what he is saying as uh, the shortest gospel. And so he is directing us to something very specific that he wants us to see about who Jesus was, this focal point of our faith. The Christian faith is focused in on the coming or the incarnation of Jesus, entering in to fulfill all this great redemptive plan. And there's two big themes that Mark starts to highlight uh, very quickly in different categories often in Mark early on in the book. And one of them is the kingdom of God, not necessarily unique to the other gospels, but very distinct in Mark to say the kingdom of God is coming. And that is a thing. And then in a different category, it will develop the person of Christ, who is Jesus, who is this Jesus. And as the book comes to a climax, you will see these get closer and closer. And finally, in the highlight, you'll see them actually come together of how Jesus is accomplishing all of the things that the kingdom of God will bring with it and making that possible and Jesus as the king of this kingdom. And this morning we're looking at a passage which highlights the person of Christ. Who is he? What is he doing here? What is he about? And we're beginning to see this person of Christ and who he is as the son of God. And we can recognize who Jesus is and merely state Jesus is the Son of God. But this passage takes us beyond just merely stating that and saying, I believe that, but actually experiencing Jesus as the Son of God. And it walks us through that. And so Mark chapter 3, verse 7 through 19, let's enter in here and see um, just what God's Word has for us this morning. If you would stand with me, if you're able, for the reading of God's word, we'll start here in verse 7. This is God's word. It says, Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea, and a great crowd followed from Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem and Idumea, and from beyond the Jordan and from around Tyre and Sidon. When the great crowd heard all that he was doing, they came to him, and he told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd lest they crush him. For he had healed many, so that all who had diseases pressed around him to touch him. And whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. And he strictly ordered them not to make him known. And he went up on the mountain and called to him those whom he desired, and they came to him. And he appointed twelve, whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him, and he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. He appointed the twelve, Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Bonerges, and the sons of Thunder, Andrew and Philip, and Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, and James, the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, and Z Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. This is God's word. You may be seated. Let's do pray as we study God's word this morning. Father God, we come before you just recognizing 
the, the rich power your word has for us this morning. Even as we study these things, we recognize you as the Son of God, and yet we have so much to learn about who you are. Lord, would you humble our hearts this morning? Help us to receive your word. Help us to be changed by your word. Help us to be formed by your word, that we might be used by you, and that we might be restored into your image. I pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, as many of you will be able to attest, uh, just as you live life, we've all experienced some level of pain, some with diseases, injuries, other with body, bodily ailments, and just some general suffering. On a daily basis, we often face this reality in our world. And the um, younger you are, probably the farther this is from reality. The older you get, the probably more this seems to creep in. And yet we recognize one of the curses of the fall is that fact. And as we think about this, oftentimes when we are in pain, uh, we become fairly desperate for something to get us out of that pain, to fix it. Um, and a couple weeks ago, I was uh, reading through my emails, and I had, um, I've got this uh, a couple bulging discs that have caused me quite a bit of pain from construction, so I've got some sciatic pain. And so I have a number of stretches that I'll regularly do to help with that. And so they're a fair amount of work. It seems like you regularly do these things, and then like you do something else, and your bike back tightens back up. And so it feels like a lot of work uh, with fairly little success at times, and you start to get frustrated. And so this email comes in from this, this stretching regimen that I'd kind of trusted, and it says, like a quick stretch to add to your daily routine that will eliminate back pain entirely. You're like, I don't believe it. You know, <laughs> I'm too smart for clickbait, but I kind of trusted who it was coming from. So I'm like, all right, I'll at least, you know, see what the stretch is. Maybe I'll just add it in. So it ends up being a video, and I'm like, all right, it's suspect already. But then you st I started watching it, and it's just, I mean, the, the narrative of just like how just low and hard the situation was for someone giving this testimonial and this, this regiment actually changing their life and it starts to go on and this doctor and all his credentials and how no one was getting the help that he was giving and it just starts to get up to the point where it's going to tell you what the stretch is and then it goes into another aspect of the story and then it goes into another and multiple times you're just going through this emotional roller coaster as I was watching this I'm like just tell me the five-minute back <laughs> stretching regimen that's going to save my life so I don't have to stretch for like 40 minutes every day. And it just never got there. And I was just like, at some point, I'm like, I'm committed now. I just want to see this. <laughs> but it's like 30, 40 minutes in, and I'm like, all right, I give up. I give up. And at the end of it, obviously, they ask for money. And I'm like, this was not what they promised me. And one of the things they started to ask was, why was I willing to watch that video? This is not who I am. I don't fall for clickbait. <laughs> Why was I willing to do that? Because on some level, there's something true about us, is that when you are in pain and suffering, you want to find some solution to it. And the more the suffering, the more the pain, the more you are desperate for a solution. And the harder the situation, the more you are willing to look for it. And here in this passage in Mark, you recognize that the scene is actually fairly difficult. Um, they didn't have modern medicine like we do. And so uh, disease, sickness, things that would be regular doctor visits for us uh, were just hopeless situations to them. 
felt like there was nowhere to turn for hope in these. And even just their political situation, they were not getting much help from the Roman government. In fact, it felt like absolute oppression. They were not able to live life the way they felt called to live. And so the air was rather tense. So with something like the Son of God entering in, who begins to heal, you start to see this picture of these people desperate for a solution, saying, I just need to touch him. Would you just touch me? And so this becomes um, this, this highly tense situation that Jesus is entering into. And so you can imagine him coming in as the Son of God. There is something very specifically he has entered in to do. And he enters in with their current problems, but that's not his primary focus. In fact, he is concerned with the redemption of all creation, dealing with sin and death, dealing with it to the fullest and bringing the kingdom of God. And to say this is who the Son of God is, it's going to take a bit of a shift, a shift him from you are able to heal our sicknesses to trust you as the one who's actually going to heal my heart, the thing I don't even realize I need help in. I don't want that solution. I want the one that feels real to me. These political oppressors removed, my body healed. That seems much more pressing. So to see Jesus as the Son of God, as he reveals himself, it's a bit of a shift in our hearts to be able to trust him, to follow him that way. So Jesus is not just a great healer. He's not just a political leader, a warrior, but he is the Son of God. And Jesus has come to make him known, himself known as the Son of God. And here in Mark, that is what we're going to see, Jesus making himself known as the Son of God. And as this is a difficult shift for us to make, Mark starts to highlight two ways in which we can start to follow Jesus here, to start to listen to him, to say, what does it mean for you to be the Son of God? I will listen to you and follow you there. Two things I think we're going to see here. We must first see that Jesus is the one who is in authority, and secondly, we must live with Jesus and listen to him to see him as the Son of God rightly. So first, we must see Jesus as the one in authority, the one who holds the power and the authority of God himself. Let's read again verses 7 through 12 and see this there. It says, Jesus withdrew with all his disciples to the sea. A great crowd followed from Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem and Idumea and from beyond the Jordan and from around Tyre and Sidon. When the great crowd heard all that he was doing, they came to him. And he told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd, lest they crush him. For he had healed many, so that all who had diseases pressed around him and touched him, to touch him. And whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. And he strictly ordered them not to make him known. Here we have this picture of Jesus being formed of how Jesus is received as he enters into the world. And to say the very least, he's at least causing a stir amongst the people of Israel. So as a great crowd starts to follow him, and you get this picture that his 
influence goes beyond that of even John the Baptist, who we heard about earlier, who was well-renowned, but it was only in Jerusalem and Judea. And here Jesus is drawing from Galilee, Judea, Jerusalem, Idumea to the south, and then to the east of the Jordan, up in Tyre and Sidon. And essentially what you've heard described is all of Israel is coming to see this Jesus. Representatives from all of Israel are entering in to hear from him, to touch him, to be healed, to see what is going on here. This is news for all of Israel. So the message of Jesus entering is spreading quickly. And they see something very unique about this person, Jesus. What starts to grow his fame here? Jesus is pretty clearly seemed, uh, seen through his authority over creation. Things that no one else in any leadership capacity was able to do. Rome was certainly not able to give any help with diseases, with medicine to that degree. And even as they looked to the spiritual leaders of their day in Israel, they were certainly not able to deal with someone who had demon possession. They just kind of had to stick them off in the corner, put them away. And so Jesus enters in and he's able to touch people and heal them and cast out demons with absolute authority. And there's something about this that they recognize as that's something only God could do. And yet they're trying to make sense of this. And even as it starts to become very, very clear, even as he casts out demons, often one of the things you hear is the demons are cast out and they recognize him. (laughs) That's the Son of God. We've been with him. You are the Son of God. And he tells them to be silent. And here, just as a side point, one of the things that's very confusing is he's telling these demons to be silent. And we start to obviously ask, why is he doing that? And we don't actually know exactly why. Jesus has his own purposes and his plans along with his coming that is very intentional in the way he comes and reveals himself. And two ways that people describe, or interpreters describe this, theologians, is that it is a battle kind of between good and evil. And obviously, even in this moment of being cast out, they're trying to subvert Jesus and identify him to get him arrested. Another interpretation would be that Jesus silences the, them because of just the, the tensity around him coming, that a tiny spark would cause an explosion. And if, even if he didn't want to be made into Messiah in a certain way, they would make him do what they wanted. And so it was about timing, needing to be seen the right way. And even though it may be a mix of both of these to some degree. We don't actually know exactly why Jesus said to be silent, but there was a sense in which Jesus is absolutely in control of how he is going to be seen and perceived. And that is part of his authority. He has been healing, casting out demons. His fame is growing, and people have recognized that Jesus is powerful and he can cure them. And they want him to cure all their sicknesses, and he enters in in a very specific way, And he does see them in their condition, and he heals them. And there's something that is very comforting to people about that of, finally, someone sees me in my conditions. Finally, someone sees what I'm going through. And Jesus' work and ministry here is building the belief 
of people around that they see that there really is something about him. He cares. He's powerful. And he is, re- he is the only one who relieved me of my burden. And Jesus' work and ministry does do this, but it's not enough to just see Jesus and acknowledge him as powerful, as good. To say, I see what you're doing. I see that you're a good place to turn for things and solutions like this. In fact, it goes far beyond this, the necessity to see him as the Son of God. And this is why Jesus does heal, but then you see something very uh, unique. He heals, but he withdraws after a point. They keep pressing in, pressing in, and they are adamant to get to him It says, from the synagogue, he heals the man with the withered hand from last week, and he withdraws from there. And they are wanting more healing, and they're pressing in around him, and he withdraws down to a boat. And it's very significant that he starts to move away from them, and it starts to point to, maybe even as this narrative starts to focus in on discipleship, what is the main focus of us to be in relationship with God? What is the main focus of his purpose here? It starts to say, this is really important for a specific reason, but it is not the main thing. I'm going to move away. And he withdraws. And this can be a very frustrating feeling for many of us, as you have probably experienced the feeling of God withdrawing for one reason or another. He is with you, but he doesn't seem to be focused on the things you want him to be focused on. You know what this feels like? Praying, reading the Bible, going to church, caring for people, doing all that you think that you need to be doing as a Christian. And then you bring your prayers before God, asking that he would care for your career, your business. It feels overwhelming. It feels like your reputation is on the line. The care for your own family is on the line. The concerns we have with our country. God, don't you see What's going on? The concerns we have with the world. God, don't you see this? Why don't you do something about it? Our own families. Lord, I'm concerned about my kids, their salvation, where they are. Don't you see this? Won't you do something about this? Our own health, as they were asking here. Lord, I'm really fearful. I'm afraid of what this could mean. I'm afraid of what this could mean for my loved ones. These are important things. God indeed does see them and believe they are important, but not of absolute importance, and that is fairly difficult. And there's something we have to learn about when Jesus withdraws here, about that in our life. We must learn to trust that he loves us, he sees us, he is indeed powerful enough to deal with it, and yet hasn't. One of the things we have to keep very, very clear in our minds at this point, because it is a very raw feeling, is that there is certainly evil in the world. There is certainly brokenness in the world. And evil in nowhere in Scripture is described to come from God. We don't exactly know where it comes from, but it is not from God. But from our rebellion against God, Rebellion against God's word. Us turning away from God, not God turning away from us. And what we do see about God is anytime God enters in, 
there's blessing, there's goodness, there's joy. Sometimes God enters in to deal with our rebellion, but the evil did not come from God, and that is very important for us to hear. We don't always see it that way, though. Sometimes it feels like evil circumstances, wrong things are from God. And that's hard for us. And this idea that God is withdrawing can oftentimes make us think that God caused this. And yet it is very clear that God did not cause this. And God will actually deal with this on a far greater level than we can ever imagine. Deal with problems we didn't even know he had. And bring solutions that we didn't even know were possible. And bring a world, a kingdom, that is far more than we could ever hope for. And yet we have to trust where he's leading here. And the good news about when God withdraws, it's not as if he entered in, fixed a few things, then left. In fact, he didn't leave. He's going to do something else, something more important. And this is where we have good news, is that he is not done when he leaves. He has not abandoned us. So Jesus has come to make himself known as the Son of God. And for us to be able to see this rightly, firstly, we just looked at, we must see that Jesus is the one who holds the authority and power of God himself. And he is using it that way for our benefit and in the direction and place and purpose he wants to. And secondly, we must live with Jesus and listen to him. We must live with Jesus and listen to him. And that's very significant. To just hear about Jesus, to just watch Jesus is a very different thing than living with him. Being in personal relationship with him. Let's read verses 13 through 19. It says, And he went up on the mountain and called to him those whom he desired, and they came to him. And he appointed twelve, whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him, and he might send them out to preach and have authority and to cast out demons. He appointed the twelve. Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, the son of Zebedee, John, the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Bonerges, and the sons of Thunder, Andrew, and Philip, and Bartholomew, and Matthew, and Thomas, and James, the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, and Simon, the zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. And here we have this shift of where Jesus is heading. And it's been saying he's going down, down, down drawing away, and all of a sudden it says he goes up to the mountain with his disciples, with those he called to him. And in Scripture, oftentimes, narrative functions this way in which you start to see the thing that is important here. And going up on the mountain is a moment of revelation from God. You think of Moses as he went up on the mountain and he received the law, the direction for God's people. This is a moment in which something that is being spoken from God is very significant. And so you start to see he is, it's not to say people's suffering and difficulty wasn't important, but it wasn't the main thing he was focused on here. And the focus on our attention then turns towards the disciples. And it's this moment of revelation. And so as we press in here, we say, who gets to hear this? Who gets to be with him? And it says very specifically that it was those whom he desired. Those whom he desired. Very interesting 
because you think of uh, rabbis of the day, one of the things that was not very usual, it was not usual for them to select their own pupils or students. In the same way as if you go to pick a college or a university or somewhere to study like that, some professor to study under, uh, you will bring kind of all of your, your credits from another university, your grades, and you'll bring this uh, transcript and resume, and you apply to the school you want to get into, and they review it and say whether they'd accept you. It was very similar for kind of being a pupil under a rabbi. You'd come to him and say, I want to study under you, and they'd say whether or not you could do it. It depended on how good of a rabbi you're coming to. And here, it's very different. Jesus doesn't do this. He picks those whom he desired. He picks 12 men to be apostles or these sent ones. In fact, this is the call that is starting to be placed upon all of us as Jesus heads out. He says, this is the focal point of everything that we are called to as believers. And this is a very normal call. It's not something very unique to these special appointed men. In fact, they are very normal people. And even when it says appointed, there's something very unique about this. Because in the English it says appointed, but the word would probably better be translated or rendered as um, he made 12 disciples. It doesn't sound very good in English that way, and it's kind of confusing to us. So appointed is the language it uses, but he made the disciples. And we remember that language when he sends disciples out. You went out to go and make disciples. There's something unique about that because he is not selecting people who are self-made men. He's not selecting people who understand a lot about the scriptures, a lot about Jesus, but he is actually creating them. We don't actually know much about who these disciples were. It goes through this list, and if you were to go into kind of the history of Jerusalem, these guys would be no names. They would be kind of the middle class at best. Some of the, the best of them would just be like good business people. So there's not a whole lot of notes about who they are even. They're just guys from the crowd that he called because he desired them. And Jesus really did make disciples. And if he was to pick the best of the scholars of Israel, it would have been very different. But even uh, in the other Gospels, it speaks of this. As John the Baptist starts to speak to Israel and some of the elites there, um, he's calling them to repentance, and they don't really believe that they need to repent. They are like, we follow the law pretty well. And John speaks very harshly to them in Luke chapter 3, verse 8. And it says, uh, John says to them, Bear fruits in keeping with repentance, and do not begin to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. And Jesus just shows this very clearly. From where no one expected, I am able to make disciples, guys who don't get it, guys who don't understand it, and I am picking them, and I'm going to make them into disciples. And really the work is very different than we would expect at this point of discipleship. Oftentimes, in like the rabbis would be teaching them the Torah, the law, how to interpret it, how to stand by it. And Jesus is about something very, very different. Not just go memorize a whole bunch of things and become a master of it, but in a very different way. I want to teach you how to be a person who lives in right relationship with God, in right relationship with his law, how to live that way. 
a very different work. In fact, that is more of a heart perspective than it is the things you know and the things you've accomplished. So he's picking people, as it were, from these stones, <laughs> from dead hearts that were not able to do it. It's a work of call from autonomy, from rebellion to God, to dependence upon God, to love of God, to trust of God. It doesn't focus on just changing your knowledge, your behavior, the things you do, but it focuses on changing your attitudes of your heart to trust God, to follow him, which certainly does change your behaviors, but from a very different place. And this is the promise of the gospel. This is the promise of the new covenant that was starting to come in. Jesus is not heading in some crazy direction from the Old Testament. In Jeremiah 32, Ezekiel 36, we have heard that this is what Jesus is going to be about when he comes in. The prophet Ezekiel says in um, chapter 36, verse 26, he says, I will give you a new heart, speaking of the new covenant. I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. I will give this to you. And the focus is on your heart. This is the focus of our discipleship. He calls these disciples and even gives them the ability to see him for who he is. And they don't yet understand it. And he is going to walk them through this discipleship program, which helps them to see him, to trust him, to know him, and to draw others into that same process. Why did he make these disciples? It's very important to hear this. There is this absolutely atomic statement here that he makes. It says he pointed, appointed the twelve so that they might be with him. <laughs> First thing he says, that they might be with him. The other stuff is coming later. They might be with him, walk with him, see how he engages with the world, see how he engages, the things he does, the areas he draws back from and the areas he presses into, that they might see that and be with him and know their Savior. And from this point, he identifies disciples. They don't know any of this. They're willing to follow him just because he made them disciples. <laughs> and that's about it. But they have much that they're going to learn, and it is in directions that they have no idea where he's going to go. And this is the core of our discipleship, to be with Jesus, to see that this plan is not about the things that seem present difficulties to us, the most important things, their diseases, the politics of their time. For us, the same type of things, when we see things that seem most crucial we have to be willing to listen and watch the way Jesus pressed in and withdrew. And say, where would Jesus go? What would Jesus do? How does he engage with these? This requires the Spirit of God. This requires discernment. This requires us to trust him. And it is from this point of understanding who Jesus is. There's no other way to see Jesus as the Son of God, what he is truly about, other than to live in relationship with him. You can know a whole bunch about Jesus and trust that he is powerful and still not know what he's about without living in relationship with him. And it is only at this point that you hear the next thing. 
which we say is the main focus of discipleship often. He says, from here, I'm sending you out to preach, to cast out demons, to do the work that only I have done to this point. But first, you must have your heart oriented right to see where I'm heading, to bring it into alignment with me. And he sends out his apostles with this authority, this ability to preach. And this is not just anything that they think is important, anything that they think is significant, but it is really to tell of Jesus Christ, him crucified, the work that he came to accomplish. It's a message in the story of Jesus himself reorienting the worldview that everyone have, both Jew and Gentile alike, those who are trying to follow the law of God and those who weren't, to align them with God's ultimate purpose and plan for all redemption, to say, it is Jesus. Let me explain it to you. That is the message that they were to preach. To see Jesus as the, as the Son of God is to see him as king, as ruler, as the one that you trust for the direction of everything. And another thing we hear is that he moves into this area of allowing them to cast out demons. And we think, wow, I get to cast out demons as a disciple of Jesus. And oftentimes it's because that's miraculous. That's exciting. But why did he give them this authority? You think of who Satan is, who the realm of darkness, who demons are. They are in opposition to God. In fact, they are very closely aligned with our rebellion and our sin. Those things that are opposed to the direction of God. Think back to the garden where Satan enters in and says, Did God really say that you can't do this? God tells them to head this way and Satan tells them to head this way. When you think of someone who is demon-possessed, they have no ability to respond to God on their own. And Jesus casts out those demons to say, I'm redeeming this so that you can see this image bearer for who he's meant to be. Casting out demons, restoring God's creation from evil, from wickedness, from sin, that's the call of discipleship, to restore the image of what God has created. Not just random displays of power. When I was... Uh, in St. Louis, Emily and I lived there for several years going to seminary. I was uh, the director of housing on uh, campus. And so one of the houses that the seminary owned was along uh, just a neighborhood that was kind of along the edge of our campus. And it was a fairly run-down house. They owned a number of houses. This one seemed like a fairly run-down house. didn't seem like it was very significant at all. It was just like, we just got to, you know, <laughs> maybe it's a tear-down. I don't know what to do with this thing. But uh, it was a fairly nice big property, but it was kind of just low eaves, very simple, subtle, uh, and pretty messy, and some random construction projects in it that just made it look even worse. Uh, and as I got into it, the, my boss, one of the things that we started to press into, he was an architect, um, and he finally realized that this house was actually built by a famous architect. Uh, William Bernudi, uh, which most people don't know, but Frank Lloyd Wright they do know, and William Bernoulli was an understudy of Frank Lloyd Wright. So you get a lot of kind of the mid-century modern stuff in residential houses from William Bernoulli. And he was just kind of brilliant, especially in the St. Louis area, for his designs. And all of a sudden we realized who had designed this house. 
and you start to get into it, and uh, I was not nearly as good at this as my boss, but he was starting to show me some of the beauty of his designs because he knew him, and you kind of stand in the house. He has these long, e low eaves that you've probably seen on Frank Lloyd Wright houses, just really distinct features, and these big, huge windows that would go floor to ceiling, and like the inside drywall would go to the outside, and like all of a sudden behind you, there's this big, long mirror, and the way he designed the house, it almost felt like you were just inside and outside had no barrier. You're, there was light everywhere, and it was just absolutely beautiful the way he had designed this house to be lived in. And people hadn't seen it, and so they'd ripped off certain things, covered up certain walls, changed certain things. And one of the things we started to do is start to try and, and this is a huge process that a lot of people get into, is to, to restore the original work. And that requires cutting away certain things, cleaning up some of the shrubs that had grown up on the house, painting it the way it's meant to be painted, show the colors and the, the features, the way that the original architect intended, and starting to display what his purpose was originally. The disciples were called to preach, cast out demons. This is the work that we're called to. To restore the image of God, to restore the creation of God. To preach this message of, this is not the way things are meant to be. There's a far greater purpose to God's world. There's a far greater beauty to God's world than we see here. And to pull off those things, to cast out demons that make it impossible to see, to get rid of evil, to push it away, that's the work of discipleship. From those who are dead, no ability to see anything, work in concert with the Holy Spirit that they might become alive. We're not teaching disciples primarily, we're making disciples. And it is a supernatural work, it is a powerful work, and it is a work under the direction and the guidance of God to say, what is your plan, Lord? How do I partner with you in that plan? How does my work help accomplish the work that you're trying to do? How does our home help display that? How does my own life help to show forth who you created me to be? This is the work of discipleship. To say, when there are things in my heart that represent evil, that represent rebellion to God, that say, I don't see God as good and beautiful and true and just and right, that I repent of those things because those are the things that get me to head the absolute opposite direction to our Lord and Savior. And they can even be seemingly right and good things that we would say, it seems like it's a good, right cause. I want to make the main thing everyone's health. God says, certainly that's important. But the restoration of all things is what he's about. The coming of the kingdom of God. Indeed, something that we need to learn how to see Jesus as the Son of God rightly and to follow him there. Let's do pray. Father God, we do come before you humbled by your grace, humbled by your goodness, that you would even be so generous to us not to start over in your creation but the beauty and majesty of the fact that you are here to redeem us, to restore your creation, to make us new. Lord, help us 
to bring our hearts in line with the things that you're about, to see you truly as the Son of God, to trust you truly as the Son of God. Lord, help us to see those areas of our hearts that do not submit to that, that do not see you as good, to be able to bring those questions before you honestly and have them addressed by your word, by brothers and sisters in Christ, to be encouraged to turn back towards where you would have us go. Lord, give us wisdom in all areas of our lives, in our homes, in our workplaces, in our families, in the public sector, in our private lives, here at our church. We trust you for this work, Lord. We know that you are indeed making disciples, and we are partnering with you in this. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.